MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 161 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We've got a lot to cover today, starting first with the details about the $364 million American dollar disgorgement <laughs> fine issued by Judge Ngoren on the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial. And it's actually more than that, and we'll get into it. More problems with House Republican witnesses and new evidence unearthed in the Matt Gates House Ethics Committee investigation. I can't say House Ethics Committee yeah, say that, yeah, yeah. five times fast, right? Uh, And we have the very moving testimony from Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and her father in the recusal hearing um, that was, you know, kicked off by conflict of interest allegations from Mike Roman in the racketeering case in Georgia. And we'll be joined by the amazing Anna Bauer to discuss the latest, the legal standards, as well as some of the ins and outs and what we can expect next. And the judge in the hush money election interference case has denied all of Trump's motions to dismiss that criminal case. And he has kept the March 25th trial date, that's when jury selection starts, in Manhattan for what will be Trump's first criminal trial. But first, we have new patrons to thank. Everybody, you can sign up at Patreon and you'll uh, get these episodes ad-free and early. You'll have uh, access to pre-sale tickets to live events, VIP meet and greets, bonus happy hour Zoom Q&As with me and Pete. A second full episode every week at the $2 level. Plus, we will read whatever name you sign up with on the show. So today, we would like to thank Mary, Gail Newbert, uh, L.A. Hiker, Truth, Justice, and Objective Reality, Michelle Jans, uh, Jaz, uh, okay, I'm going to mess this up, Jasney, Jasney, um, the, the, it sounds fancy. You sound very fancy. Valley Girl, like, oh my God, P. Bledsoe, 63. Tegan, without Sarah, David Blakely, uh, and uh, that we will. Ha- and those are just the first batch, Pete. We have so many new patrons to thank. We're going to be doing it throughout the show. I can't thank you enough. Sign up at patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. Thank you for supporting independent media. All right, Pete, I think we need to start with the news out of New York. It's the big news. Judge Angoron's ruling in the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial. Yeah. And so this is the summary essentially of the ruling. So 
Bottom line, Trump and his various businesses are liable for $354.9 million. And it's actually a lot more than that because of the way disgorgement works. You have to go back to the date of the when the crimes were committed, and then interest begins accruing from that point forward. And it's pretty hefty interest. I mean, approaching 10%. So by the time you get to this, all said and done, you're well over $430, $440 million. So it's a lot of money, but it's not just Trump himself. Eric and Don are each liable for just over $4 million. Alan Weisselberg is liable for $1 million. Alan Weisselberg and Jeffrey McConney are permanently enjoined from serving in the financial control function of any New York corporation or similar business entity registered and or licensed in New York State forever, permanently, lifetime ban. Donald Trump, Alan Weisselberg, and Jeffrey McConney are hereby enjoined from serving as an officer or a director of any New York corporation or other legal entity in New York for a period of three years. Trump is barred from borrowing from any New York bank or any bank registered with the New York Department of Financial Services for three years. Eric and Don Jr. are barred from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation for a period of two years. Barbara Jones, you remember she was a financial manager. She's going to financial monitor. She's going to stay on for a period of no less than three years. And an independent director of compliance will be installed at the Trump organization within the organization at Trump's expense, reporting to her. She has 30 days to give the court a list of potential candidates to serve as that independent director of compliance. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. Um, and. It is true that if he wants to appeal this, he needs to come up with the full amount or get a bond, right? Um, also, on that list of banks he can't ever borrow from, um, for three years, includes Deutsche Bank. Uh, so that's that well has dried up, although I think it probably dried up well before this. And I think he's got some money coming due to them, uh, a couple hundred uh, yeah, what, a couple hundred million dollars. He's got a lot. He's got a lot of debt refinancing coming up. So this comes at a yeah. particularly bad time. Just take out all the criminality and the civil proceedings. If you just look at his financial status, one, all this crap about I have so much liquidity on hand is nonsense. The 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 dirty secret going back a long time is that there is not. And we've talked about it in the show that he doesn't have a lot of liquidity. He didn't have it when he was running for president in twenty sixteen. You know, he doesn't have a lot now. So despite his protestations that he has, you know, all this money that is growing by the day, the reality is, you know, he, particularly when you add in the $80 million or, or whatever it is, 80 plus for, that he owes E.G. and Carroll for the second trial and the four or whatever from the first, Allison, he's over half a billion dollars. And he can't just, you know, he's going to appeal it fine, but he can't, like you said, he's either got to put it down or he's got to find somebody who's willing to, uh, put it down for him and assume that risk. And they're not going to do that without, you know, a lot of collateral because he is kind of a high risky guy, unless, you know, you're the sovereign wealth fund of some unscrupulous country willing to barter it for, you know, 10 inch binder of our nation's secrets or something. But I just, it's not, it is not despite, you know, and he's selling $399, just hideous gold tennis shoes. He's not going to be able to sell enough made in China tennis shoes to cover this money. Period. No, uh, the thousand pairs at uh, four hundred bucks—that's four hundred thousand dollars. That's about six days worth of interest. Uh, so yeah, no. But he, you know, Alina Haba told Fox News, or maybe it was Newsmax—I can't tell the difference anymore. Maybe it was OANN that they intend on putting up the four hundred whatever million. 
Um, and, you know, he did just get that that S pack went through the, the SPAC or whatever it's called, the big five billion dollars uh, for tr- tr- Trump media, which I'm very surprised about. Now, several people have been indicted for insider trading on that uh, DWAC SPAC type situation, uh, the public offering. But apparently that was approved. And I don't know if he can use that money. Uh, somehow leverage it here. I'm, I have no idea if he can borrow it from Kushner or maybe call up his buddies at the Live Golf Tournament to get it in. All I know is that whatever, however he ends up paying this, it's going to have to go through Judge Barbara Jones. So uh, it, it, it she'll she'll alert the court if there's something fishy. That that I know. Keep in mind too, like if he doesn't pay it himself, right? If he goes out to essentially find the, you know, the corporate sort of civil version of a jail bondsman, right? Somebody who's going to put up that money for him. It's not, oh, you've got to put up, you know, whatever it ends up being, 440 some odd million dollars. They charge you for assuming that risk. There is additional oh, interest. So he's him. paying interest. He's paying interest on this uh, this judgment. But if somebody other than him puts up this money, that comes at a, an additional cost to him. And when you're talking that level of money, that's a lot. So not only is he, I'm certain, going to have to put down collateral-like properties, what it is going to cost him in the end if he goes that route is well in and beyond You know that final 440. I think it's 442. I might be off. But if he doesn't do it himself, and I have some significant question about whether he can, that total is even higher. And Allison, just wrap your head around that. This guy, half a billion dollars, and a former president, and you know, the worst thing, Jimmy Carter recused because he had a PR or, or got rid of his peanut farm. I'd be interested to look up what he sold the peanut farm for. A peanut farm. <laughs> a peanut farm. How much, how much how much revenue was coming out of that peanut farm? But nevertheless, he got rid of that because he didn't want to present the appearance of impropriety and conflict of interest. For Even Mnuchin farm. sold his shares in a movie company. Now, granted, he sold them well, to Blavatnik. Got, yeah, he's, right. <laughs> right. And Mnuchin <laughs> truly you know, has, has enough money and whatever. Yeah, mm. I'm always curious. Didn't his, didn't his wife make some movie? I'm always curious how that – it looked kind of sketchy and a little odd. But I anyway, I, this, is, this is a huge amount of money. And it is on top of how Trump is going to or not be able to manage – Everything else that goes on in a day in day out basis, where so much of his business empire is not in cash investments, it's on licensing, it's in the perceived value of his name, the prospect of the continued success of his name. The New York Times had a big article talking about how a number of condominium complexes in New York that bore Trump in somewhere on their title or on the facade of the building actually were losing money compared to the broader market. And then when they took the Trump physically took the Trump name down and renamed it and gave all the doormen different, you know, little outfits that didn't have Trump, the property values went up. That's so any sort of argument that, oh, my name is worth so much, eh, it's not true in Manhattan, right? Yeah, that old brand valuation that he illegally applied anyway, it's probably negative now. Um, and there's something else that was interesting about uh, Weisselberg, right? Because you and I have talked about this on previous episodes, he got a $2 million golden parachute, but only at certain points and only for non-cooperation with the government. So the judge had something to say about that. He wrote, there is substantial evidence that Alan Weisselberg's $2 million separation agreement was negotiated to compensate him for his continued non-cooperation with any entities with any legal interests adverse to the defendants. Moreover, as Weisselberg was a critical player in nearly every instance of fraud, It would be inequitable to allow him to profit 
from his actions by covering up defendants' misdeeds. Accordingly, Alan Weisselberg is liable for the money he has received from this separation agreement as ill-gotten gains. Although he was promised $2 million in total, at the time of his testimony, he had only received $1 million. So accordingly, Alan Weisselberg must disgorge the $1 million he has already received as ill-gotten gains. Now, the agreement was noted also earlier in the ruling, Pete, on page 28, where it says, on January 9th, Weisselberg entered into a separation agreement. This is 2023. A separation agreement and general release with the Trump organization, wherein the Trump organization promised him a total of $2 million in installment payments as long as he performed his obligations under the agreement. Section 3D Delta of the separation agreement said, except for acts or testimony directly compelled by subpoena or other lawful process issued by a court of competent jurisdiction, he will not, one, communicate with, provide information to, or otherwise cooperate in any way with any other person or entity, including his counsel or other agents, having or claiming to have any adverse claims against the company or any person or entity released by this agreement with regard to the adverse claim, and two, he can't take any action to include, encourage, or excuse me, induce, encourage, instigate, aid, abet, or otherwise cause any other person or entity to bring a file or complaint, charge, lawsuit, or other proceeding of any kind against the company or any person or entity released by this agreement. And then, this is my favorite part, there's a footnote. And the footnote says, although not before this court, such a provision, the one I just read, would almost certainly be unenforceable as against public policy to the extent that it restricts full and truthful cooperation with legal investigations and actions and cites Denson v. Donald Trump for President, Inc., Trump campaign's non-disclosure and non-disparagement provisions are invalid and unenforceable as they are against public policy. Denson, if you don't know, is Jessica Denson, and she sued Donald Trump's campaign to release her from her NDA and got all the NDAs uh, overturned. And she here is cited in this ruling to say, hey, Weisselberg, you can't be sued by Donald Trump if you cooperate with us. Just want to let you know. Or with any legal entity. Or if you tell anybody else to, to, to cooperate with any legal entity. And I thought that that was really fascinating, that, that, that Weisselberg has been found to have been paid off for his silence, for his non-cooperation, and that they cited Jessica Denson, who I've had on the Daily Bean several times to talk about her lawsuit, uh, as as the reason why. Yeah, and I'm curious. Remember, we still don't know these these rumors that uh, Weisselberg is under some sort of discussion about a potential plea deal for perjury that he may have committed at this uh, before Judge Ngoran and during those proceedings. We still don't know the outcome of that, and so whether or not, as the uh, state pointed out, when Judge Ngoran essentially said, "Hey, do you want me to wait?" Or should I go ahead? The state said, no, 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 you can go ahead and issue your decision. If there's something adverse in here, there are a variety of ways that, you know, you're not closing the the book. You know, you can go back and there are a variety of historical precedents where if Weisselberg does something, you know, so egregious or, or so bad that it impacts or has the potential for impacting thing relevant things relevant before you, you have this ability to go back. So, you know, I don't think this, we're not done uh, hearing, I think, from Weisselberg and potentially Weisselberg's journey through the criminal justice system. But, you know, that was definitely interesting. You know, my, my favorite uh, was this excoriating uh, language, which uh, also in the decision, this is about Trump and his broad general refusal to admit error. 
at all. And this is directly from the filing in, uh, in Judge Ngoran's wording. Quote, the English poet Alexander Pope, 1688 through 1744, first declared, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Defendants apparently are of a different mind. After some four years of investigation and litigation, the only error, inadvertent, of course, that they acknowledge is the tripling of the size of the Trump Tower penthouse, which cannot be gainsaid. Their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological, unquote. Which I, wow. yeah, that's, that's the guy. You got him. That's him. That's, yeah. <laughs> look, I, I think he, it is something that we all know, something that is so plainly obvious. It is great when we start to see these things written in judicial opinions where some independent judge sits there and puts into writing these things that we all have seen and that we all know. And it is like all these things. If the man was just capable of saying, sorry, yep, I screwed up. Here you go. We wouldn't have this New York trial. If he was able down in Mar-a-Lago to say, oh my God, yeah, I kept this classified. Sorry, thought I could keep it. I was mistaken. Here you go. Like Joe Biden did, like Mike Pence did. We wouldn't have a trial down there. Or, yep, you're right. I lost the election. I should just go. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that too, right? Yeah. But I think one of the things that really stood out to me in this ruling was where the judge basically said, I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting here, I'm just paraphrasing, that after considering the testimonies of Michael Cohen and Alan Weisselberg, he declared that Michael Cohen was truthful in his testimony and they because they tried to impeach Cohen because of his perjury charge. But he he says, nope, Michael Cohen was truthful based on the evidence I've seen. And Weisselberg was not a credible witness based on the evidence that I've seen. And that is actually going to, I think, weigh heavily in the first criminal trial of a former president of the United States brought in, in the charges brought by Alvin Bragg, because that Michael Cohen is also a witness there. And I know that Weisselberg is involved in that case. And we're going to talk about that case and what the judge decided at that hearing, that pretrial hearing. But we need to take a quick break first. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. We have more patrons to thank. Deb C, MRNPH, Janet Ingvaldsen, NAC 9016. All right, right on. I was, I, I am not certain, but I'm almost 100% certain that stands for new agent class 90-16. I was NAC 98-8, went to Quantico in the 1900s, as the kids point out, but we can maybe <laughs> talk about the Quantico experience on a bonus episode. But uh, JT Blue, board writer, Phantom, Jennifer Creeden, Susie's just about had it. Uh, thank you all so much. Thank you for your support. Thank you for making all this possible. Thank you for allowing us to uh, bring on people like we're just about to do. Now, you'll remember last week when we recorded the bonus episode, we still hadn't heard Fonnie Willis's testimony or, for that matter, the testimony from her father. In this past weekend, Anna Bauer, who's amazing, posted the following message with a Bernie Sanders gif accompanying it. I'm once again asking TV networks, podcasts, and print media to put people on their platforms who actually know things about Georgia law and the Fulton County case. So joining us today for an update on exactly that, the Fulton County case and the recusal hearing, uh, please welcome Anna Bauer. Anna, welcome. Thanks so much for coming back to the show. Really appreciate uh, your insight. Uh, you know, some of the, the highlights from the hearing, you know, certainly for me, Fonnie Willis's uh, <laughs> phrase, a man is not a plan, which sadly I, I can't really push back too hard on that. <laughs> and her, her point that, look, I am not on trial here. These people are on trial for trying to overturn the 2020 election. But I think at the end of the day, 
you know, having listened to her testimony, having listened to her father as well, and in addition to a, a number of witnesses after that, is there enough here to disqualify her? You know, you told Katie Fang, who also has been just doing yeoman's work uh, on this case, in your words, legal standard has gotten lost in the mudslinging. So can you can you walk us through a little bit about just, you know, what that legal standard is and, and where you think we stand uh, following all the testimony last week? Of course, I'd love to walk you guys through it. And, and thanks so much for having me. Personally, my favorite quote, Fonnie Willis quote, is the one in which she said, uh, if you tell me it's a G, I'll, I'm going to give you a thousand. Uh, when she was talking about how she always pays back her friends. I thought that was a really great turn of phrase, but there there were a lot of really great turns of phrase in her testimony. But I do think that it's important for people to understand what the legal standard is here. It is actual conflict. That's what Georgia courts have said when you have an allegation of a conflict of interest that is disqualifying for a district attorney. Uh, it's not enough to show just, you know, that something looks bad. That's what's called the appearance of impropriety. And can I ask you, I think we had an actual conflict and that disqualified her from in prosecuting Burt Jones, who's the lieutenant governor, right? Because she was openly publicly supporting and went to a fundraiser for his opponent. That was a conflict and she was removed from the case there. Right. So this is this is Fonnie Willis's second uh, time that there's been a disqualification issue that's been raised. Uh, previously, this was during the special purpose grand jury process. If folks remember way back when, when that was going on and they were gathering evidence using this kind of weird grand jury in Georgia. Uh, and Burt Jones, who is now the lieutenant governor of Georgia, uh, you know, there was a, the, a political campaign. He was running for office. Uh, Charlie Bailey uh, is is someone who is connected to the district attorney's office, an old friend of the district attorney. Uh, she supported his campaign and, and through a fundraiser, uh, he would have been Burt Jones' direct opponent in that race had he you know won the primary that he was running in. So Judge McBurney looked at this and said, you know, any investigation that Fonnie Willis could be doing of Burt Jones would be something that would be helpful to Charlie Bailey, his political opponent. Uh, and, and so that is a conflict of interest because it kind of gives her an incentive to want to investigate this guy who is running against the person that she favors for a political office and who she's very publicly supported. Uh, so Judge McBurney in that decision disqualified Fonnie Willis from investigating Burt Jones. Uh, she st he still allowed her to continue investigating all these other folks, which resulted in the indictment. Um, but I, I will say, Allison, I'm glad you raised this case because it's actually kind of important for the questions around which standard applies here. As I just said, Georgia courts have said that the standard is actual conflict. So you that what the defense needs to show is that Fonnie Willis's relationship with Nathan Wade gave rise to a palpable or a real financial interest in the conviction of Trump and, and these other folks. It can't just be, you know, again, that it looked bad or that there was the appearance of some kind of conflict of interest. And in that decision regarding Burt Jones, Judge McBurney has this footnote that people recently who have been following the Georgia case closely 
have pointed to because he kind of indicates that maybe in some cases you could apply an appearance of impropriety standard, which is, you know, uh, much more broad and it does it's not as exacting. Uh, And he, you know, cites this federal case in which the the Second Circuit said that in some rare cases you could apply an appearance of impropriety standard. And that has given some people reason to think that, you know, here it could be that McAfee, because this is such a high profile case, it involves a former president, you know, maybe he could apply that appearance of impropriety standard, which would be much more friendly to the defense. That is, in fact, what some of them have argued in some of their briefs. There's been nine of the defendants in the case who have are seeking disqualification. And so they all kind of are arguing or supplementing the original motion that was filed by Mike Roman. Uh, and, and so there's some question a little bit about which standard applies. But in my view, based on looking at what Georgia courts have applied in the, in the past, it's actual conflict. It means they've really got to show that, you know, there's something here that gave Willis a financial interest in the conviction. So that would mean maybe that they, Willis and Wade, shared assets together. It, it might mean that Willis incidentally benefited from Wade's employment because he paid for her vacations using funds that he was paid as special prosecutor, effectively resulting in a kind of kickback scheme. That's what they've alleged in the in these motions. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry to laugh, but if, <laughs> if I'm going to try to get a guy a job because I want to date him and I want him to have money, I'm not going to recommend a government job. I'm just not. Yeah. And you're not going to recommend the you know prosecution of Donald Trump because, I mean, <laughs> no. it sounds like a terrible right. job. And go to other people <laughs> first, right? Go to the former governor to ask him before you even consider your, you know, the second or whatever option uh, Nathan Wade was. What are we looking at next week? I mean, I know some people were hoping that Judge McPhee would issue a bench ruling, essentially hear everything and say, okay, here's my decision. Uh, You know, it seems to me he may want to memorialize this after some thought and writing. But what are we, you know, beyond your thoughts about where we're at right now, what, what does next week look like? And then what does the path ahead look like in terms of is his decision final? Can it be appealed by either side who loses, whichever side loses? Um, and, And what does that path forward look like? Yeah, so there's a lot of unknowns right now, Pete. So it's a little bit difficult to answer the question in terms of what's next. But I will give you uh, a sense of kind of what is up in the air. Uh, One are are some of these outstanding issues with the evidence uh, at where we left things on Friday when that evidentiary hearing closed uh, was with, uh, you know, there was this man, Terrence Bradley, who was supposed to be the star witness for the defense team who uh, made this motion to disqualify. Judge McAfee, uh, after cross-examination by the state, indicated that he was very concerned with whether the witness had been forthcoming or accurately interpreting how he asserted privilege. Uh, There were a lot of assertions of privilege that he made on various topics related to the relationship between uh, Willis and Wade, but then also the circumstances surrounding his departure from Nathan Wade's law firm, which he used to be a a partner in. So Judge McAfee suspended his testimony and planned to have what's called an in-camera presentation or a conversation with Terrence Bradley, in which uh, Terrence Bradley was going to go into 
the circumstances of these communications he had with Nathan Wade that he claimed privilege on. Uh, McAfee would then decide whether they actually were protected by attorney-client privilege, and if they were, you know, whether they might be subject to some kind of exception because, of course, the defendants had raised uh, the crime-fraud exception uh, during this hearing, which McAfee uh, rejected but did not, you know, rule out still finding after this in-camera conversation with Terrence Bradley. So that leaves us in a situation where this evidentiary hearing could be reopened if there's reason that McAfee has to believe that some of these things that were asserted, where there were assertions of privilege, were in fact not privileged. And that would mean that we go back into court. We continue to have the evidentiary hearing where uh, there's examination of Terrence Bradley on these areas where he improperly claimed privilege. So that's one thing that could happen. Then there's also the fact that the defense teams are still trying to admit evidence. They, they, they indicated that they had phone records they were trying to get so we're waiting to see if they're going to be able to get those phone records. And if and if so, will those phone records be admitted? Will there be, you know, a reason that we have to go back into court for them to, for example, authenticate those records or something like that? Uh, and then we also have closing arguments as well. Of course, there's a number of defense teams involved, so the scheduling is very difficult. But McAfee indicated that either end of this week or next week, we'll have closing arguments I also know from speaking to some defense attorneys at the hearing that there's a potential interest in some of the defense counsel submitting post-hearing briefs. So we could see some post-hearing briefs and then maybe a reply from the state. So I think it's going to be a number of things that have to happen before Judge McAfee makes a decision. As a as a very conservative kind of estimate, I would say at a minimum, we won't hear a decision for at least two weeks, but I, I would say it's going to be well beyond that because I think that this is something McAfee's really going to want to craft a good order for. Uh, in terms of appeal, uh, it is it will be subject to uh, McAfee a discretionary appeal. He will basically, you know, decide whether it's something that can be immediately appealed. Um, and and if not, then, you know, it is something that I imagine would be raised on direct appeal or after uh, a trial. But, um, you know, we will see what he does. I would think that with this highly politicized decision, he may allow the defendants, if he decides against them, to go ahead and appeal and go to the Georgia Court of Appeals. Uh, let me let me ask you a question, because now, you know, both Pete and I have personal experience having Donald Trump and his allies come after us. And there seems to be a pattern here that I recognize personally and that I also recognize publicly. And that's that the two star witnesses for the defense seem to have a bone to pick with Willis or Wade. We have the first um, witness who was, I guess, fired from the DA's office by Fonnie Willis, and then we, and then they're no longer friends. And then we have, like you said, Mr. Bradley, who was removed from the Wade firm. Uh, does that play at all when it when uh, the the judge is making these considerations and weighing these considerations, or is it strictly there's not an actual real conflict here? And do we even need to get into that weeds because it seems like a lot of mudslinging. 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly is a lot of mudslinging. I I do think that it's going to factor into the judge's decision when he's deciding whose credit or whose testimony to credit. Uh, so the judge is going to have to make findings of fact. He will have to decide, you know, was there any kind of personal benefit that Fonnie Willis, uh, you know, got through her relationship with Nathan Wade? I do not think, in my view, that the defense showed that there was any kind of, you know, a financial or personal benefit through these vacations. But what it comes down to is this, uh, you know, the testimony of Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, for example, saying that there were cash reimbursements. Uh, And then also the other kind of big issue that goes to Terrence Bradley and Robin Yurti, who are the, the witnesses that you just mentioned, Allison, you know, the big issue with them is the timing of the relationship, because even though this started out as the question of a conflict based on financial benefits, there's this factual dispute between the defense and the prosecution about when the relationship started. And Nathan Wade in an affidavit swore that it didn't start until 2022. Uh, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade both testified on the stand that it didn't start until 2022. But the defense says and and had this witness who is Robin Yurti, who is a, you know, left the district attorney's office in uh, less than amicable circumstances. Uh, She testified to facts that contradict that uh, that testimony. And so Judge McAfee is going to have to decide here whether he credits Wade and Willis or whether he he credits Robin Yurti. So this question of bias is going to be something that factors in. Terrence Bradley, it's a little bit more murky what exactly he was testifying to or what exactly he right. knows. Uh, but the defense does say that he, he would also uh, testify that, you know, this relationship started before 2022. And the reason that I think that this question is important is because, you know, if the defense can show that there were misrepresentations by the state on this fact, I think that that gives a presumption or some kind of inference that there actually is a conflict of interest. Uh, So it's not that that actually, you know, generates a conflict itself. But it, it if the state was misrepresenting the timeline of the relationship, which I don't think they were, to be clear. Right. Uh, I don't think that's what the evidence shows. But there is that factual dispute. And so the defense is arguing, basically, if they were lying about this, then that is kind of proof or an inference that there was a conflict and that she should be disqualified. Can you walk through and look, I agree with you. I don't know that there's enough here based on my understanding through people like you and others who are smart that there's enough here to disqualify her. But it seems, and so if we set aside the hopeful ending that there's nothing of this, the case continues. If there is any sort of adverse action, if I, it, it, and at the risk of going down a rabbit hole, it seems to me that there are a number of scenarios where what happens is determined by different people depending on what the decision is. In other words, there are some circumstances, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, where say we sure she were to recuse, and I don't think she will, but that potentially the governor would make a decision about who would get the case versus if McAfee decided that she should not be involved, it goes to a different decision-making body or person to decide who takes over the case. Can you run through to the extent you know the different scenarios where if something adverse happens, 
kind of the different paths that this might move forward? Sure. So there is a scenario in which McAfee decides that, yes, she should be disqualified. And in that scenario, under Georgia law, she, her whole office is disqualified. It, it's If an elected district attorney is disqualified on conflict of interest grounds, it means that her conduct is imputed to the entire office. So the basically the law just assumes like, oh, your entire office is also conflicted out. So what? So it we does, have what we had in the Burt Jones thing, right? Exactly. So then it goes to the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia, which is a nonpartisan agency, uh, and there's uh, uh, the head guy. His name is Pete Scandalakis, and it kind of just goes to him to decide whether to continue the case and assign it to another prosecutor or uh, a, an attorney who's maybe an, a retired attorney, uh, excuse me, a, attorney who would take over the case. Um, you know, talking to a lot of attorneys in the legal community in Atlanta, there's a lot of skepticism that the case would even continue if it goes to the prosecuting attorney's counsel, not necessarily because they would just not assign it, but because there would be very few people who would be able or willing to take on the case. Uh, you can look at the Burt Jones disqualification as an example. It has been 18 months since Fonnie Willis was disqualified from investigating Burt Jones, and there there has still been no decision or and no action from the prosecuting attorney's counsel. So, you know, I think that's why the stakes are so high here is because many people think the case will not continue if she is disqualified. There are other circumstances, though. So you mentioned recusal. What if Bonnie Willis voluntarily recuses? It, the thing is with that, it's basically the same. It depends on if it's an informal or formal recusal. If she formally voluntarily recuses herself uh, on conflict of interest grounds, she still has to go through the whole, uh, you know, notification to the prosecuting attorney's counsel. All of those consequences are the same as what I just described if she is actually disqualified by Judge McAfee. I guess it's also possible she could do some kind of informal recusal, but I I don't really know if that is is something that she really can do or if public faith would even really be, you know, increased by an informal, you know, recusal in which she says, oh, my team is dealing with it, not me. Um, and I also kind of wonder if, if she did that, if that would give the defense grounds for them to say, well, if she's recusing, her entire office needs to be recused anyway because of mm -hmm. the law regarding, you know, imputing conduct of the district attorney. So then there's the or excuse me, the other option in which she resigns, which I think some people have called for her to do. Again, I don't think that the consequences are as desirable as people think that they are in that uh, circumstance, because the person who would appoint her replacement would be Governor Kemp. Um, and I, I, you know, am not entirely sure that he would be appointing someone to that position who would be inclined to continue the prosecution in any event. So I think in any of those circumstances, whether it's recusal whether it's resignation, whether it's disqualification, it all comes down to whether Fonnie Willis is going to stay on this case. I think the case lives or dies. So, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, because I, I, I've noticed a lot of people making the recommendation that Fonnie Willis step aside and let her deputy take over the case. And, and I, I was very, I'm glad you asked that question, Pete, because I was like, I don't, I don't know that that necessarily, that it works that way. Um, and personally, just personally, I think that um, after seeing Fonnie Willis's testimony and her father's testimony, I think it actually cuts against Trump with the jury pool. Um, not necessarily, you know, like, cause at first when, when the whole thing first started, I was like, oh, this is, Ugly because of, you know, because of Mike Roman, not because of what Fonnie Willis did or didn't do. But then, but then after, you know, Fonnie Willis came on, just blew me away. And then her father came on, corroborated everything that he told her growing up. I was like, I don't think that this actually taints the jury pool in favor of Donald Trump at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because I get, on one hand, talking to the legal community. People find uh, the, you know, people have been quite critical uh, in the legal community in Fulton County uh, because, you know, lawyers are very hesitant to, you know, give any kind of sense of impropriety or conflict of interest. You know, those are the kinds of things that they, you know, tend to maybe judge a little bit more harshly than than the average person. But then talking to people who are outside of the legal community in Fulton County, Allison, I think you're right. Uh, it, it Especially after Fonnie Willis's testimony, there was a lot of sympathy for her and, and uh, you know, a lot of people who were rallying around in support. Yeah. And all of the her father testifying to all the danger that they faced at the house with, the, right. with his grandkids and him and, and, and Fonnie Willis. It, it, it really, sh- I think, probably shifted a lot of perspectives. No, I think that's right. And it was, you know, that's one of the more remarkable hearings that I've ever experienced in my life. I I can't even describe the mood in the room when Fonnie Willis strode in with her pink dress on, uh, ready to take the stand. And I, I think that she really, you know, won a lot of hearts and minds over with her testimony, not just through, you know, her description of all of the horrible things that she's been through and her security situation. Um, But she also just really convincingly for me uh, brought up some, you know, context to the, the key issues like the cash reimbursements Uh, previously, Nathan Wade had testified to these trips being paid back through cash. And I think that there were a lot of people who maybe would have found that implausible but it was Bonnie Willis and her father who were, you know, really contextualize it. They they were able to be very specific about it. And I found it incredibly convincing. Uh, and even though I don't even know that it would have mattered if she didn't reimburse him because the the sums were not uh, twenty five hundred. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she she certainly educated a lot of people. And so did her father, including myself. So I, I was I was happy for their testimony. Uh, that day. Anna Bauer, seriously, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Thank you for all of the work you're doing. I know it's tireless <laughs> and sometimes feels thankless. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Pete, do you have any final thoughts? 
No, absolutely. Just want to thank you as well. And like everybody out there, I mean, there are people who I follow for a number of reasons, but for everything in Georgia and other Trump stuff, Anna Bauer at uh, uh, Twitter slash X, which is A-N-N-A-B-O-W-E-R. And of course, your employer, who I've been a huge fan of for a long time, Lawfare, uh, which is at lawfaremedia.org, just a tremendous resource for all things Trump, but also a lot of like good, just national security reporting as well. But Thank you. This is amazing. Hope to have you back soon. Uh, you're just amazing, smart, informed guests. So thank you for everything you're doing. Thanks, guys. I so appreciate it. And and of course, I'm such a big fan of both of yours. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. More patrons to thank. Toby Mattingly, Sigrid, Michelle Hill, Reed Brooks, Kindness is Sexy and Strength is Flexibility, Leanne Utah, Nancy Batt, and Stephen Johnson. Thank all of you for your support. Uh, You are key partners in what we're doing here on a weekly basis and simply can't thank you enough. So, uh, Allison, you noted that, in fact, the first criminal trial of a former president, of any president, is going to begin on March 25th. We didn't think it was going to go in March because the D.C. coup trial was scheduled to begin on March 4th, but because that was delayed a bit by the courts, and in this recording at least, we're still waiting for a ruling from the Supreme Court on the immunity issue. Now, this is from CBS News. Trump attended a pretrial hearing Thursday in the case, which involves the circumstances surrounding a payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels in 2016. A grand jury voted to indict Trump on March 30, 2023, charging him with 34 felony counts of falsification of business records. Trump has denied wrongdoing and pleaded not guilty. He has repeatedly accused Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg of pursuing the case for political gain. Judge Juan Merchan denied Trump's motion to dismiss the charges at the beginning of the hearing. Quote, at this point, I can inform you that we're moving ahead with jury selection on March 25th, he told the court. He later said he expected the trial to last about six weeks. Now, this is from the ruling. On September 29, 2023, Defendant Donald J. Trump filed omnibus motions seeking various forms of relief, including dismissal of the indictment on the grounds that the charges are legally defective and because of pre-indictment delay. Defendant also demands a more robust bill of particulars. Defendant moves to dismiss the indictment on the grounds, on the grounds that he was prejudiced as a result of alleged pre-indictment delay. In the alternative, defendant seeks a hearing to determine whether the denial between the commission of the alleged crimes and his arrest violated his due process rights. This branch of defendant's motion is denied. Defendant's motion to dismiss the indictment on the grounds that the charges, as presented to the grand jury, are legally insufficient is denied. Likewise, defendant's request to review the grand jury materials in their entirety is denied. Defendant moves to dismiss the indictment on the grounds that the district attorney in New York allegedly targeted him for prosecution in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of both the United States and New York state constitutions. This motion is denied, including his request for a hearing. It's a trend, Allison, that I'm feeling in this. (laughs) Defendant also moves to dismiss the indictment on the grounds that the charges are time barred under the statute of limitations. But because the statute of limitations was extended by Governor Cuomo for all crimes during covid The indictment was brought within the five-year time limit. Defendant moves to dismiss counts in the indictment as multiplicitous on the theory that the indictment, quote, groups sets of charges based on the same alleged payments to Cohen, unquote. This motion 
is denied. Defendant <laughs> filed a motion to compel the people to provide additional particulars. That motion was mostly denied, but the judge says that the people can introduce new underlying crimes outside of the ones already provided to the court. That is the underlying crimes that make the misdemeanor falsification charges and turn them into felonies. And then finally, defendant claims the rules regarding grand jury secrecy have been violated. That information leaked to the public has prejudiced the defendant to such a degree that it warrants dismissal of the indictment. Everybody can join in at home. This motion, this motion is denied. Is denied. <laughs> so yeah, not not a good day for uh, Trump up in New York. And the thing, Allison, that got me is like, it, it, people are looking at this, and I know there's a lot of grumbling when Alan Bragg brought this case saying, oh, you know, it isn't a serious case. It's the weakest of all the cases. It shouldn't have gone first. At the end of the day, the judge is like, like this is a righteous case. Yeah, These are alleged violations of law. This is not frivolous. This is not a misuse of the judicial system. This is a real case. And we're going to have trial. Yep. And it's, we're going to have trial next month. And in fact, in about, you know, the short, short month of February, in just about a month, we're going to be having a trial. I am interested to see how the electorate uh, responds. We know that in like Iowa, South Carolina, and those primaries and the exit polls, they were talking about how... Uh, in in Iowa, like thirty three percent, and in South Carolina, up in the forty percent, you know, some mid forty percent of people wouldn't, you know, would not vote for him if he were convicted of a crime. But convicted of any crime, or were they specifically thinking of the coup? You know, the January sixth crimes, the documents crimes, um, or is it any crime? And and will this impact? You know, if, if it's a six week trial and a March, so that's April, mid-May, it's going to be uh, a potential conviction ahead of the convention, of the nominating convention. Um, and, and again, that's why I think Nikki Haley is staying in the race, <laughs> because she's ca counting on a conviction or some or some sort of contested convention. Um and then, you know, when we get to May, then we, and we look at a late May, perhaps early June trial for the January 6th stuff, we could get another conviction uh, before the election. So I'm, I'm very interested to see if the kind of conviction makes a difference to voters. Uh, and I'm also interested to see if the $364 million disgorgement settlement uh, makes a difference to, to voters, uh, because that's not a criminal conviction, but it's certainly a, a, a you know, it's a, a big tell on his, you know, ability to not defraud banks and and New Yorkers. So it, it'll be interesting to watch how this all unfolds. Yeah. And keep in mind, too, the topic matter of this trial at the end of the day. I mean, it was one, you know, in a sane world, any of these things should have torpedoed his ability. You know, the master businessman of, you know, the deal making Trump. It's like, no, you're a fraud. You're a half a billion dollar fraud. In this case, you know, the trial coming up that, you know, yes, it was, you know, kind of trying to, you know, change the vote or, you know, hide things. But the act at the bottom of it was the payment of money to a porn star in the form of Stormy Daniels. So, the average Republican voter, the average, you know, Christian evangelical supporter of Trump, Family one would values. think in a in yeah. a logical, rational world would look at this and say, oh, my God, this man's unfit to be president, particularly given the fact that, you know, a, a judge in a different court has found him to be liable of sexual assault and rape, as the term is commonly used. Maybe you would put all this together and say, how can we have somebody that a judge is saying, yeah, that's that's rape in the commonly used sense of the word, who his fixer is paying off a porn star. How, yeah. any, how can it, it 
again, the world is upside down. You know, one thing that they did, I think, went on a little bit. Uh, there was similar behavior with uh, Karen McDougal, who was another person that Trump allegedly had an affair with, allegedly paid money to her. The National Enquirer may have paid money via a catch and kill process. But I don't know. I think my reading of that, my recollection is that that sort of pattern of fact is not going to be allowed into the trial. But again, to the point of if you are trying to decide who you want to be your president, who is fit to be president, none of the underlying acts. And again, you know, Michael Cohen, yeah, he pled guilty to perjury, but he's a compelling witness. And as you pointed out, the, uh, you know, judge in Gorin said, I, Michael Cohen told the truth. So I, I, I think, you know, anybody counting on, though, they're going to be able to impeach Michael Cohen's credibility. I, I don't think that's the case. And I, I think, think so you know, as the guy who was Trump's fixer, as the guy who was his, you know, the guy who knew all the dirt and the dirty laundry, I think he is going to have some very, very interesting things to tell on the witness stand. I think so, too. And I think he's like a he's a, a he's kind of redeemed himself in his character arc, you know, uh, as as we've gone through this, at least in the eyes of New Yorkers, I, I think. Um, but, you know, at the heart of this, Pete, it's an election interference case. Uh, it, it truly is because he, by by paying to silence someone through a lawyer or a, a couple of lawyers, pr- uh, deprived the American voters of this story, so, uh, of information that they might have found useful when they decided to cast their vote in 2016. And I think that the Manhattan District Attorney is going to frame it as such. I know one of the underlying crimes is campaign, federal campaign finance violations. Uh, And so uh, that I think is how it will be framed and how it should be framed. And I don't think a jury is going to take too kindly to to understanding that because of Trump's actions and his falsification of business records, he hid from voters the fact that he, you know, had this affair uh, with Stormy Daniels. So I think we'll, uh, well, you know what? I know that we'll see what happens because this trial, the jury selection starts on uh, March 25th. And um, I don't think there's anything that he can do at this point to delay it. We're kind of past that point of no return now, now that all these motions have been denied, pre-trial motions have been denied. And uh, we're just, you know, a mere, mere weeks away, several weeks from, from finding out how this, how this turns out and how voters will react if he is convicted six weeks later. Yeah, for sure. He's entered, you know, we call it the Rudy horizon, right? You get to the point where you've kicked the, so many cans down the road, you push it off, you push it off. And all of a sudden you get to the point where, you know, the gravitational pull of all these different processes, you can't keep pushing them all down the line anymore. And it has started, right? We saw it in the New York Attorney General civil judgment. We are now about to see it in a month's time in the first criminal context. During that intervening time, he's got to figure out how he's going to come up again when you add in the Eugene Carroll stuff, half a billion dollars. I mean, any any mm-hmm. person, he does he does not have it. He doesn't have it. And so, you know, all these things that he has spent his life trying to dodge through the court system, he's he's hit that horizon point where he can't escape the the pull of justice. And I, for one, am thrilled uh, yeah. at that prospect. No, yeah, agreed. All right, we have to uh, take a quick break, but we still have more to get to. Everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have some more patrons to thank our last batch, including Heather Nealon Champagne, You Guys Rock, Excl- no, Small I One Linda. I, 
if there's a cool way to say it, I, I, I'm very uncool, so I apologize. Pinky, Canuck with a buck. Uh, Anna Murray. Uh, we have Catriona Lohan Conway. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Rachel Rose. Thank you so much for being patrons. If you want to sign up, it's patreon.com slash aisle45pod. All right, let's check in on Jim Comer. Has he called the office? Because he's had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad list of Joe Biden impeachment witnesses happening in the past couple of weeks. Uh, by now, we've all heard the story of Alexander Smirnoff, whether you've heard me talk about it on The Beans or whether you heard Andy and I talk about it on the Jack podcast. The source of the explosive 1023 form that proved a, a bribery scheme between Barisma and Hunter and Joe Biden and how Barisma bribed them both $5 million each. And in exchange, Biden would keep Barisma safe and fire the Ukrainian prosecutor Victor Shokin for trying to investigate Burisma. He was actually not. Uh, this story was run nightly on Fox News for months. Comer and Jordan would appear on shows and talk about it on all the networks. And this document was the basis for opening the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. You've probably also heard that the source of that document has been indicted not just for making false statements under Title 18 U.S. Code 1001, but also for falsification of records in a federal investigation under Title 18 U.S. Code 1519. And this was the FBI Form 1023. He fabricated it. And that count alone carries a max 20 years in prison. I mean, he won't face that many because he doesn't have a criminal record. But that's a big charge. It's not just a 1001 charge. But what I'd like to talk about before we discuss how this destroys what little remained of the Republicans' sad impeachment attempt of Joe Biden, is why Smirnoff wasn't indicted in 2020 when he created the FBI 1023, and why David Weiss is now the one indicting him. Now, I have my theories, uh, but I've been wondering what your thoughts about it are, Pete. Yeah, no, and I've got a lot of thoughts too, because I mean, first, I mean, the big story is this totally just to the extent that everybody should have known that the entire, you know, impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden was complete and utter nonsense. This is, this should be the final nail in the coffin. That, that was nonsense from the beginning. And there's absolutely nothing here. It is all, whether you go with the Gal Luft, whether you now look at Smirnoff, when you look at, you know, other sources who have disappeared in the thin air, they are indicted criminals. They are on the lam. They are, there's, nothing there. And that is the takeaway. The The impeachment of Biden was nonsense from the beginning. What is, as a former agent, as a former agent who was looked at extensively with my entire team about everything we did with the investigations of Trump, our use of sources and whether or not, you know, when, you know, information was sufficiently footnoted in a, in a FISA application, I have some real concerns about how this person who allegedly lied to the FBI in 2020, what the FBI, because again, this guy wasn't just a source open in 2020. When you look at the indictment, the things that it talks about what are called admonishments. When you have a human source that you have to like on a regular basis, sit down there and say, look, you know, you're not an employee of the FBI. You can't lie to me. If you get income, you're supposed to report that to the IRS's income. And you go up there, they're just a series of standard things you do. You run their criminal background to make sure that, you know, they haven't been arrested and didn't tell you about things. Those admonishments that are cited in the indictment indicate that he was a source going back easily at least 10 years at a minimum. And that additionally, that he was given authority of what's called otherwise illegal activity or OIA. When you have sources who are engaging in activities that would be illegal, but if they're doing it 
at your behest if they're, you know, say they're running with, you know, a bunch of drug dealers and you know that what they're doing are dealing drugs, but because they're working with you and wearing a wire or providing information, they can't do that without dealing drugs and breaking the law. You get what's called authority to conduct otherwise illegal activity or OIA. That comes with its own set of requirements to sit there and say, hey, look, you know, you're able to do this because you're working for me. This doesn't give you the right to go run around and deal drugs all the time. If you do those things separately, you can expect to be prosecuted, blah, 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 blah. So in this case, he was also given OIA going back, again, a long time. And so the question becomes, in my mind, this stuff that was clearly erroneous, that appears to be very much a result, as laid out in the indictment of Bill Barr going to Scott Brady on the U.S. attorney out in Pittsburgh and say, hey, we need a channel for Rudy to route that and all the other Ukraine evidence, quote unquote, evidence into the FBI. This apparently was ginned up at that time. And so my question is, is the Department of General Inspector General Michael Horowitz going to look into with a tenth of the vigor (laughs) that he looked into all of us looking and investigating Trump? Is he going to use a tenth of the resources to find out whether or not what Bill Barr had Scott Brady do, whether or not they had them pursuing this now lies that Smirnoff has been charged with, whether there was any impropriety on the part of DOJ, on the part of the FBI agents who were running him, who should have known that he didn't like Biden and he was slapping around dirt that they nonetheless were using to predicate and generate criminal investigations. Is anybody going to care or because Chuck Grassley isn't yelling at DOJ IG, are they just going to leave it alone? Because unless somebody in Congress is holding their feet to the fire, they really don't want to step into this at all. And we have a, in fact, two-tiered system of investigation and prosecutions in this nation where the FBI, if they dare look at Donald Trump, are going to have their behavior scrutinized up, down, left, and right. But if they look at Joe Biden, if they look at a Democrat, eh, well, you know, hands off, we're not going to look at their motives or their conduct at all. So I have real questions about what the FBI did with the source, when and if the source went bad prior to this charged conduct, whether or not, I'm curious what you think about whether or not that this should be handled at all by David Weiss given all the other things that he's doing. And I just, given that David Weiss and Scott Brady are both Trump-appointed U.S. attorneys, should they have anything to do with this at all? What do you think? Well, I don't think David Weiss should have anything to do this with this at all, because David Weiss is a witness to what happened in 2020 uh, and shouldn't be part of this, because Bill Barr went on television just about uh, in June, I think, of last year, when we heard about the 1023, and he told people on television, and he told the Federalist, and they printed it, that he didn't close the investigation into this 1023. We handed it off. We handed it off to Delaware. I didn't close it. That's wrong. That's incorrect. Because Jamie Raskin was raising the alarm bells. Jamie Raskin said, This guy lied to you and filed a false document or falsified a document in 2020, and y'all shut that down. And now, all of a sudden, it's coming out again uh, to David Weiss. And the interesting thing is, is that David Weiss himself in the indictment countered Bill Barr's lie back in June. He said in his indictment that back in 2020, August of 2020, as a matter of fact, after Donahue Donahoe had been there as the paydag for about three weeks, 
told him to shut it down. And so did the deputy director of the FBI, Bowditch said to to close that investigation, told Scott Brady to close it. Uh, and Jamie Raskin assumed that it was OK with Bill Barr if it was coming from the, the pay DAG, who was, you know, the right hand man to the DAG who runs the DOJ, basically. And then our main justice. So my question then becomes, Bill Barr's now caught in a lie. So Weiss says he didn't get this case until 2023, July of 2023. Then he indicted uh, well, he tried to get a plea deal with uh, Hunter Biden uh, in his investigation there. And then, of course, Republicans in Congress freaked out. Trump freaked out. Why aren't you indicting him? You're a sorry piece of shit, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then he asked to become special counsel and indicted Hunter Biden. And then three months after that, he got a search warrant to go, to go through Biden's iCloud. It's all backwards. Weiss shouldn't have this because he is a witness in this case against Hunter Biden, framing Hunter Biden and framing Joe Biden. There should be a special counsel appointed. I mean, I don't, first of all, you know how I feel about Horowitz. I think there should actually be a special counsel appointed to look into this. And because this is like corruption at the highest level. I don't understand for, well, we all know that Weiss is about to, you know, go through a bunch of discovery because Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's attorney, is like, I think that you are vindictively and selectively prosecuting my client, and I want all the information and all the communications about all of this stuff, uh, and uh, and it was going to have to come out in discovery. And I, th I personally think to save face, Weiss indicted this guy to cover up for Brady, cover up for Bill Barr, uh, and and you know the fact that they didn't hand this. They closed this investigation in 2020, didn't indict the guy. And now you sent this to me earlier today. His lawyer, Smirnoff, the guy, the source, his lawyer has responded because uh, Weiss wants to hold him in pretrial detention, saying he's a flight risk. And I'm not saying he isn't a flight risk or is a flight risk, but his lawyer makes a really good point in saying you've got him in protective custody and you want pretrial detention for a crime that he committed in 2020 that nobody did anything about. And I, emphasis is from what the lawyer said. No one did anything about this in 2020. You didn't charge him. You closed the case. You moved on. Merrick Garland hasn't picked it up. No U.S. attorney appointed by Biden has picked this case up and, and charged it. All of a sudden, David Weiss, it was brought to you right after this 1023 was announced by Chuck Grassley and Comer and the Republicans in Congress to look into this. And now he's indicting him after the plea deal with Hunter Biden blew up and he ended up having to indict him, I think because of political pressure, but whatever. It's just really fishy. And I think somebody needs to get to the bottom of it because here I am speculating wildly about it uh, when we need the truth. Yeah, and the, the person to get to the bottom of it would be somebody like the Inspector General of the Department of Justice. And if you took out the name Hunter Biden and replaced it with Hillary Clinton, he'd be hell-bent on doing that, as we saw for years. But because, again, in my opinion, Republicans know how to work the refs about a thousand times better than Democrats do, and, and where, again... I will give the Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator Durbin enormous credit for what they have done in getting judges confirmed to the district court level, the circuit courts of appeal. Setting that aside, there is a Judiciary Committee controlled by the 
Democrat majority in the Senate that could ask this right now and for a few years now that could ask any number of these questions. And I'll be damned again, a little bit of movement on trying to get a, you know, code of conduct for the Supreme court justices, but you know, that tends to like flare up and then die away. The, and I am completely with you. The entire actions of Bill Barr, the people around him, including by the way, Bob Herr, Robert Herr, Mm -hmm. but in particular, Scott Brady in Pittsburgh and everything they did with Rudy, all the information that was brought in by people acknowledged now as active agents of the government of Russia needs some scrutiny. And as far as I can tell, I don't think anybody is looking at it because we need to look for and That's bullshit it, it, completely. And I, Allison, I, I'm sad to say, I do not think that is going to happen unless it is from Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's attorney. Or Smirnoff's attorney trying to say, you know what? BS. Let's see discovery. Let's yep. let's lay out what you knew and when you knew it and who the people are involved in their conflicts. And if it is not coming from those two defense teams, I don't think we're going to see anything because everybody, oh, you know, let's return to the, you know, the norms and standards of the Department of <laughs> Justice. And, you know, yeah, those were bad acts and we would never do something like that. So let's just leave, you know, yeah. we'll we'll leave. You know, the, 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 the child who, you know, continually has their hand in the cookie jar will just, you know, they won't do it again. You know, it's the Susan Collins, I'm sure, furred brow. I'm sure they've learned their lesson. Yeah, it's the furred brow. Senate needs to do this. Um, Senate Judiciary needs to do this. Uh, yeah. It's maybe even Senate intelligence. I mean, I, I, I hear that sigh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, Regardless, uh, we'll, you know, we'll, well, I'm looking forward to discovery uh, in the Hunter Biden case. And I think that um, maybe somebody will look into this. But there's also uh, Bobolinsky, right? <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. So another, yeah, we talked about before J- Jim Comer, star witness, t- star witness, because, you know, Smirnoff is floated away and managed to get indicted, but he's still got Tony Bobolinsky. Jim Comer even said about Bobolinsky, quote, of all the guys that were involved in the Hunter Biden orbit, Tony Bobolinsky appears to me to be the one solid guy that tried to do the right thing and was honest. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Bobolinsky, his claims are basically he believes some of the cash from an ill-fated Chinese energy venture with Hunter Biden made its way into Joe Biden's bank accounts back in 2017. But, 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 much like the New York judge's motion denied. As it turns out, Bobolinsky has connections to Victor Vexelberg. Why do you remember that name? Why? Because Victor Vexelberg is a sanctioned Russian agent. Going back to connections, his connections to Putin, uh, the Renova Group, money that was going to Michael Cohen. If you want to go back and put your Columbus little, Nova. You know, my, the PTSD, you know, triggering uh, memories in me, uh, going back to 2016 about monies that were flowing in and around Michael Cohen and to Trump. But again, it was called, uh, it was called Essential Consulting. Consultants, yes. And, <laughs> and Renova Group and Columbus Nova was the US entity. And, you know, whether or not people in the United States were or weren't, you know, I think maybe a nephew of Vexelberg who was involved. I, I, again, it's a long. In Trader. Yeah, In Trader. We, we could do a mini series on this. I did right? a whole podcast on it called the Mueller She Wrote podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we did, <laughs> right. We did yeah. You, you, may, you may remember, Allison. But again, that's, that's Comer's. Sole remaining standing star witness. Turns out he's got connection connections to 
a sanctioned Russian agent. So cool, it's cool. not enough that your prior star witness just got indicted. It's not enough for your other star witness, Gal Luft, also got indicted. Oh, by the way, dealing with Chinese and Iranian proliferance, not not the nicest thing to do. Selling arms to Libya. Uh, but, 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 you know, that's that's who they got. So congratulations, James Comer. You, you, every time you say you cannot but clown yourself more, you respond with home by beer and you go and you do it. So I can't wait to see what your next trick is. But buddy, you, you never fail to impress in a bad way. You lie down with dogs, you get fleas. You lie down with dogs, lose the house. Uh, that's what's going <laughs> to happen. Yeah. And, and speaking of which, uh, lying down with... <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, excellent segue. More Matt Gates text. Okay. But this time with uh, sex workers that are in the hands now of the House Ethics Committee. And of course, someone is leaking them to the press. Sollenberger at Daily Beast says, when ABC News reported on Wednesday that the House Ethics Committee had acquired text messages between a young woman involved in the sex trafficking investigation and Representative Matt Gates, a Gates spokesperson told ABC that the congressman, quote, doesn't know anything about the woman you're referencing. Sullenberger goes on to say, this seems extraordinarily unlikely. The Daily Beast can now report that this woman told prosecutors in 2021 that she had sex with Matt Gates at a drug-fueled party that she was paid to attend, according to the woman's attorney. And there's a buried lead, too. The woman's lawyer told the Daily Beast, quote, she told them that she and lots of girls were provided uh, all kinds of controlled substances at these parties. And get this, we always were wondering how, why they didn't prosecute Matt Gates federally. The heavy use of drugs and alcohol was a hurdle for federal investigators, the lawyer said, since it muddled memories of the events. Pete, can that be true? First of all, I want to say I support sex work. I'm 100% for this. This woman was uh, 21, I believe, at the time. I have no problem with this. Me, personally, I'm also not a Republican trying to preach family values. But can that be true, Pete? Have you seen a case or heard of cases where there are drug-fueled Molly Coke orgies going on, maybe with pills from the White House and Ronnie Jackson? I don't know. Uh, no pops. Where Yeah, lollipops, where it's real hard to prosecute crimes that happen at these parties because everyone is so kind of high. Well, you know, it is true that any prosecution is going to look at the totality of the evidence and what is there, what is missing, and how they're going to get that in the trial and how it's going to be attacked. And by, again, we don't know because DOJ didn't announce this, but there was some reporting at the time. You may remember Joel Greenberg, who was an associate down in Florida, Matt Gates's who cut a plea deal, uh, was apparently from reporting saying, yeah, you know, Matt Gates had was trafficking with underage sex traffickers, which again, I'm like you, I, I, I have one feeling if you're legal and doing that consensually, but if you're underage, entirely different ballgame, entirely horrific, abusive, should be pursued and prosecuted to the greatest extent possible. Yeah, and don't get but, me wrong, like it's still creepy. No, 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 30, no. and 30, I just wanted to point out the difference between- Twenty-one-year-old, but that I'm, um, um, I'm, I'm. Got it. I, I, I agreed. But. I'm just. I was just trying to. But, but when it came to Greenberg, who was saying, "Yeah, you know, these were underage. These were minors." Minor, yeah. The the issue became, in particular, like what, how credible not only Greenberg was, and you know, not particularly, you know, the most, uh, you know, appealing witness for the state, but then a number of things between, you know, one victims who may not want to testify, but then two people who might want to testify, but say again, you know, whether they have memories that 
a defense attorney could say, well, look, you know, the events in question, were you taking illegal drugs? Yes, I was. What drugs were you taking? Do those drugs have the effect of impairing your memory or your perception of events? Were you drinking at the same time? So, you know, all the different ways that a, you know, a jerky, but doing their job defense attorney is going to try and introduce credibility questions with witnesses they're going to do. And that's something that DOJ takes into account about whether or not they're going to pursue charges. Now, there's a very different standard when it comes to House Ethics Committee. And that's where I hope we right. see at least something that, it. hey, look, it may be a bridge too far for what DOJ was willing to do. But when it comes to the House Ethics Committee, I mean, damn, if you're not going to pursue this and keep in mind, I mean, you know, Kevin McCarthy's left, but Matt Gates made a lot and has made a lot of enemies within the Republican Party along the way. So, you know, it's not, I think, you know, some listeners of ours might be inclined to say, well, look, you know, it's a Republican health ethics committee run by the majority of Republicans isn't going to do anything about it. Matt Gates has made some enemies within the Republican Party, whether it's enough to actually do the right thing. And actually, the, the ethics committee is uh, half equal Dems and Republicans. Oh, is it 50-50? Well, it's 50-50. So, you know, we'll see what comes out of it. But again, you know, so many of these things, it, it is amazing to me how much power people like Matt Gates, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene has said something like, we're never going to have a vote on aid to Ukraine because I said so. I mean, it's, you truly have the insane clowns running the asylum. And it's not, it's surprising to me that somebody like Matt Gates with such apparent clear evidence, nonetheless manages to carry the amount of power and uh, kind of persuasive ability that he does. Ah, and, and I just wanted to fact check myself here. Uh, the Ethics Committee is unique among all House committees in that it is a bipartisan committee. The Ethics Committee membership go. consists of 10 members, five from the two national political parties. The chair comes from whichever party is the majority party in the House. All committee staff are nonpartisan. So bipartisan committee. Um, and they put out a pretty scathing report on Mr. George Santos. Uh, but his and he was indicted by the feds. Uh, so yeah, and I don't know if that's going to end up being the sort of de facto boundary, right? That they, if somebody, if there's enough there that somebody could, you know, is likely to be indicted, that that gives them the political power to go ahead and say, "Hey, look." This no, is and with the a two vote margin, they're not going to expel any more of their members. No way, no day. Right. Right. Yeah. So because man. it's more important to hang on to their one little shred of power and block shit and be obstructive than it is to do the right thing, as we've seen time and again. Right. Well, that ship long since <laughs> sailed, but you know, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> no need to remind everybody. All right. That is our show this week. Episode 161 in the can. Do you have any uh, last minute thoughts before we get out of here? I mean, I know we record this on Monday. We could get a decision from the Supreme Court on whether or not to grant the stay application for Trump in immunity, on immunity before this episode airs on Wednesday. We could get that on Tuesday. We record on Monday. So it, it'll be interesting to see the folks listening to this episode if we have that. I actually wrote, because I'm so cool and I'm very hip, uh, I wrote a mock Supreme Court ruling uh, in the immunity case and I put it up on post. Um, I think that I, well, I'm hoping that they don't grant uh, the stay. I don't know that they'll have five votes to do it. And I think it's because, uh, in, at least in my mind, the narrow ruling in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, they said we didn't decide on whether any president has immunity for all official acts. We're deciding whether immunity attaches in this case per this indictment when somebody is uh, alleged to have overturned 
an election and tried to overstay their four-year term under the executive vesting clause. And because it's narrow, kind of like Trump v. Benny Thompson when he was trying to block the documents from the National Archives and said he had executive privilege, D.C. Circuit said, we don't, it doesn't matter if a former president has executive privilege. We wouldn't give you the privilege if you were the sitting president because the need for these documents by the January 6th committee countervails your executive privilege claim, whether you have it or not. So we don't even have to decide whether or not you have executive privilege. And since we aren't having to decide that, the Supreme Court said, we're not stepping in and granting a stay. And they did it really quickly. And I think they could do it here too in the immunity case. We don't have to decide whether all presidents have immunity or not from not being impeached and convicted or, you know, from your double jeopardy impeachment judgment clause or whether you have absolute immunity from official acts, no matter what they are. We can decide those on a case-by-case basis at a later date. All we're here to decide right now as this narrow ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And since they didn't decide those big questions, we don't have to take the case because we don't have to decide the big questions. So we're going to deny the stay. I wrote it all up. It's all fancy. I even put that Clarence Thomas would grant the stay and dissent. And that maybe Kavanaugh would write a a sort of a strongly worded concurrence, if you know uh, know what I mean there. But uh, anyway, uh, we could have that by the time folks listen to this and, and the D.C. trial could be back underway. Yeah. Wills, I have no idea what to think, because on the one hand, I think the Supreme Court would very much like an off ramp that gets them away from having to decide anything about it. On the other hand, I can't help but think the egos of these folks are not insubstantial. And Supreme Court justices in particular to have an opportunity to weigh in on something directly addressing the presidency, the draw, the magnetic appeal of putting their wise thoughts to this issue, even more than the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, is is the one thing that gives me pause about whether they'll just simply say, nope, it was rightly decided, denied cert. Yeah, but they so didn't we'll do see. it for executive privilege for former presidents. They didn't do it in Trump v. Thompson. Mm, this is this is executive privilege is a whole, in my mind, a tier lower than the idea of the immunity of a president. And again, I, I honestly don't know. But the thing that is keeping me from saying, oh, yeah, I think they're going to let it go, is this whole idea of it's such a weighty issue and their thoughts are so wise on it. That <laughs> right, I, and in right. that case, so we'll I see. hope they treat it as a petition for cert, grant it, set a blistering schedule, have a hearing yes, in uh, March, and decide by decide by May. All <sighs> right, well, we'll know uh, as Wednesday approaches, as you're hearing this podcast, uh, whether or not we could get this. Uh, this I think we'll get it this week, but I don't know. Fingers crossed. All right, that's the show, everybody. We will be back in your ears this weekend for the bonus episode. Thank you so much for being patrons if you get to hear the bonus episode. And uh, gosh, that's all I've got. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. And our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.